your host, Jordan Kavuma, and this podcast serves as your space to find clarity and grounding in your creative business. I hope that our time together will provide you with not only a clear vision for the way forward, but a strategy for how to achieve it while keeping the most important things, the most important things, because when you thrive, your business thrives. Hey guys, welcome to this season's final episode, the listener Q&A episode. So when I had the idea of ending each season with this kind of episode, I was really hoping to just form a connection with you and create something that would allow you to become an integral part of the podcast. I am creating this content in order to benefit you and your creative pursuits. I don't ever really want to lose sight of that. So I'm just really excited to be able to offer this opportunity for you to write in and share what's on your mind. I really hope that during this season of the podcast that you have not only been encouraged by the topics that we've covered and the conversations that I've had with my guests, but that you've also gotten a feel for who I am and my desire to be as completely open and transparent with you as I possibly can. I never want to give the impression that I don't have the same fears and setbacks that you do. I still to this day lose focus. I still get wrapped up in the thoughts in my head. I still more frequently than I would like to admit, avoid hard things. But what I want to focus on is the fact that my ability to recognize the triggers and signs that I am allowing myself to believe myths, mistruths and things that are holding me back comes on much stronger than it did five years or three years or even one year ago. And because of that, I am able to put a plan in place and take actionable steps to improve. It's not perfection, but it's progress. So I really just want to put that little word in there before we dive into the questions that I received that I am so very, very excited to talk about. All right. Question number one was from Reb and she asked, do you have any tips for product-based businesses to not lose major momentum after the holidays? So I'm probably going to say this every single time, but this is a really great question. And it's very timely as we are getting ready to head into the holiday season. For those of you in the retail space, this time of year can be really crazy and really fun all at the same time. There is some major cash to be made and a lot of your yearly income probably comes from this quarter four. But I will say it is not wise to rely on quarter four for the bulk of your income. How can you use this elevated traffic during the season to drive increased sales month over month? Now, before I dive into this answer for this question, I want to give a word to all my service-based businesses out there. Just because you are not selling a physical product does not mean that the things that we're going to talk about do not apply to you you still want to make sure that you are using this time of year to set your audience up to know what to expect from you in 2020. It can drive a ton of excitement and anticipation and allow you 
to use this increased amount of online activity during the holidays to your advantage. So the first thing that I would encourage you to do is to focus on increasing your email list subscribers. So hands down, this is the best piece of advice that I can give as far as marketing is concerned for your business. You have no control, zero control over social platforms, but you do have a certain level of control over your email list. No one's going to come and shut down email or take away all of those people from you who have agreed to let you send things to their inbox. So you want to be sure that you are leveraging that. If you're building that relationship with your audience through this season, then when the new year strikes, you will be fresh. You'll be fresh on their mind and you can keep marketing to them with whatever content and promotions you want to send out. And they're going to be eager to hear from you. If you have your own website, make sure that you have places for them to opt in to your email list on every single page and offer an opt-in incentive if you can. So that can look like a coupon or some kind of free content. Really think through what's going to appeal to your audience and then provide them with value that falls into that area. If you don't have your own website, say you sell all of your products on Etsy, then make sure that you have a link for people to opt into your email list on all of your product pages and even the homepage of your shop, like your shop page and like your shop announcements or your welcome or something like that. Um, you can even take one of the 10 photos that you're given on product listings um, and use a graphic in place of a photo that encourages people to sign up for your email list. And then in the description of that product, include the link that will take them there. Um, I would even include in the shipping message something about signing up for your mailing list and then even some kind of card in the package that encourages it as well. This email list is just so valuable. So you're really going to need to give people more than one opportunity to get in on it. I do want to mention though that consumers are very smart. <laughs> they do know that when they sign up to receive whatever free thing you're offering on your site, that they're giving you permission to send them emails. So I will say it's not quite as easy as it once was to get people to hand that information over for a simple checklist or 5% off coupon. So take what you know about your customers and create an offer that would find that they would find valuable enough to give you access to their inbox. So along with turning your increased traffic into email subscribers, I would really go ahead right now and start thinking about what kind of promotion you want to push in the new year. So when I say promotion, I don't exclusively mean a discount. I just mean, how are you going to appeal to the fact that it's a brand new year, a fresh start, and that's what's going to be on the front of the minds of all of your customers, regardless of if you believe in new year's resolutions or not. Everybody has a sense of beginning in January, and we all have an idea of what we want this year to look like and how we want to tackle that. So get to know your customers. If you don't, then that's going to be some work that you need to do. There's You're, you're not going to be able to get very far with um, endearing people to you and getting them to really latch on to what it is that you're doing if you don't know them very well. We've talked about that already in this season. And so that's just going to be foundational to anything moving forward. But once you have that really nailed down, think about what your customer is going to be really excited about and also in need of 
in the new year. So if you sell um, skincare products, then you're going to really want to position your product to them around the fact that like they have an opportunity to um, take a new route with their skincare or to really focus on the health of their skin and how this is a part of, you know, being like self-care and making sure that you're really giving attention to the things that you need to give attention to. Now, I would not encourage you to do a big inventory clear out sell at the beginning of the new year because you have just sold a lot of product to a lot of people. You probably have a lot of new customers. And so if immediately right off the bat, they see that if they would have just waited a little bit longer, they could have bought the same product from you at a much deeper discount. And so that might make them like a little bit annoyed. And so that's not how you want to start out. So you can really get creative and come up with some new ideas of ways to position your product in exciting ways. You could think about doing a collaboration with somebody else that would appeal to your target audience. You could think about bundling products together in order to sell them as a set. So it's like kind of you've ready-made these um, this experience for somebody. You could write certain content that focuses on a topic that is going to appeal to your customer on in the new year and then put together like guides or starter kits or something like that that would fall in with, you know, if you want to get started on the right foot, if you want to use my products to, you know, reach this goal that you have, I've lined it all up for you and here it is. So there's a lot of really creative ways that you can position your products as something fresh in the new year, even if you haven't actually made something new. You're just going to market it in a new, fresh way. So I know that this can sound really overwhelming because you are probably eyeballs deep in work right now and trying to keep your head above water. And so the thought of taking that short period of time between Christmas and New Year's to try to come up with this promotion is a lot. And I agree, it is a lot. And in an ideal world, we would have had this done weeks ago. But if that is not where you're at right now, I would encourage you to just start biting this off piece by piece right now. It is not going to make a lot of sense for you to expect yourself to get all of this done after you finish your holiday rush, because a you're going to be exhausted, you're probably going to be a little bit burnt out creatively. And you're also going to just want to chill out and spend time with your friends and family which is a good thing. And so what can you do right now in tiny, tiny, tiny steps that is going to set you up to just roll out whatever promotion you're thinking of in the new year? Does that mean that you start crafting emails that are going to go out and you just have them scheduled or saved in whatever email service provider you use? Or does that mean that you go ahead and start taking photos now whenever you're taking photos for other content that you're doing during the holiday season? Does that mean if you're going to do a collaboration with somebody, maybe you could go ahead and reach out to them and start making steps? I think it makes a lot of sense to take the big picture of what you're trying to do, break it down into tiny little steps, and then just piece by piece by piece, you do things along the way so that whenever the time hits in the new year and you feel a little bit exhausted, but you're trying to get your engine revving again, you can do it in a very slow, gradual way. That is going to make a lot more sense and set you up for a lot more success. So that is my very generalized response to this question. There are a lot of specifics that play into your unique situation. And I will say, 
If you are having a hard time coming up with ideas or solutions or strategies to be able to implement this, I would be thrilled to talk to you and to really kind of take a strategic look at what your business situation is, what goals you want to start to accomplish in 2020, and then just set an actionable plan in place so that you can start to do that now without feeling completely overwhelmed. So if that is you, then I would love for you to head over to the groundingpodcast.com and shoot me an email so that we can schedule a discovery call and just see what would make the most sense for you so that you can really get into 2020 with some real excitement and not overwhelm and not feel like you are already behind as soon as it starts. All right. Question number two was from Catherine, and she asked me to share all of my favorite ways to get things done. So this one was fun for me because it forced me to think through my workflow and how I approach my work on a day-to-day basis. So I have a few different plates spinning at all times that I have to pay attention to. So making sure that I am prioritizing and checking in and managing my time well is essential to my productivity. First, I am a big believer in giving everything a designated time. If we let different tasks or responsibilities spill over into a place that they shouldn't, then we're going to be less likely to be able to focus and be productive. So for example, when I am home with my family, I am home with my family. When my daughter was born, I tried to get work done while I was home with her. And as you can imagine, it did not go very well. I was not efficient. I was distracted. And I would find myself getting really annoyed with my baby for doing things that are expected of a baby. Now, as she has gotten older, her naps are more predictable and she plays a little more independently. So I can sometimes get a few things done while I'm home with her, but it's not what I rely on. That's always kind of like a bonus if I, if I'm able to do that. So first of all, I would encourage you to get a hold of your, get a hold on your schedule, a solid understanding of what that looks like. And don't just try to fly by the seat of your pants. Look at your week and break up your time to allow you to focus on one thing at a time. Multitasking is not the best way to be productive. I know a lot of people um, are big fans of multitasking and knocking out a lot of things at one time. But honestly, in my experience, I find that you are less focused when you're multitasking and you are also not doing as high quality of work. So try to just focus on one thing at a time. Since I have been doing this, I can work on my podcast and not try to take breaks to answer emails about my embroidery business, or I can hang out with my family and not be looking at my phone to try to engage on social media. I can write my post session notes for a coaching client and not try to also think through a marketing strategy for the coffee equipment company that I do some work for. When you wear more than one hat, which I know you do, then you have to decide when to take one off and put the other on. You start to look and feel a little bit crazy when you're trying to wear three hats at one time. Secondly, I try to be really strategic about when I'm going to be most productive and do the hardest things during that time. So for example, 
I do my best work in the middle of the day. I know that is not usually when most people are most productive, but when I have had a chance to let my brain wake up, I've knocked out a few easy tasks, and then just before I'm ready to start winding down for the day, I can do some really good work. So that's often when I dive into writing copy or planning content or responding to long emails, things that require a lot of thinking and intentional focus. So all that is planned ahead of time, which is my next tip. Don't start the day by asking, what should I do today? That's never going never going to go well. You need to either plan your week or plan the next day when you are ending today. I even find it helpful to just straighten up my desk a little bit before I close up for the evening. So it's not like a major cleaning, but just enough that I'm not returning to a mess. Another thing that I find helpful is to go ahead and pull up the web pages or the programs that I'm going to need to start the next day with so that I feel like I'm already a little bit ahead of the game and it's just kind of wait on, waiting on me to get started. I could keep talking about this forever, which means it's most likely going to be the focus of an upcoming season, but I'll go ahead and wrap up this question by recommending a few apps that help me out that you probably are already using, but if not, then it would be something good to look into. So first is Google Drive. I pretty much use all of the apps in the Google suite because it makes it easy to find what I'm looking for. And many times I can just grab a file from Drive and directly import it into whatever program I'm working in. And honestly, it just saves so much time having one system to work on so that I don't have to jump around. So the big takeaway from that, like if you are not using Google Drive, if you don't want to use Google Drive for one reason or another, just find one system that is going to um, file away your documents or your graphics or your photos or whatever it is that you're having to constantly access so that you can easily find them. You know exactly where they're at. You can share them amongst different programs and you're not always having to waste time like logging in, logging out, or, you know, just wasting time trying to jump between programs. The second app that I love is Zapier. So creating zaps to make things happen automatically has saved me so much time. So for an example, when a client registers for a session with me, I have a zap set up that takes the Calendly appointment. The Calendly is what I use for my calendar scheduling, and it creates a meeting in Zoom. And then it creates an event in my Google Calendar. And then the of the Google Calendar event invites the client to the event and includes the link to the Zoom meeting. So I know that that's like a lot of like different steps, but just that's the point. It's a lot of different steps that I'm not having to do. It saves me at least five to seven minutes right there. There are also so many other automate automations in Zapier that can be helpful and finding ways to automate as many things as possible is just going to allow you to stay focused on what you need to stay focused on and not break your attention span when you have to do small little tasks like that. Because even though it might not seem like five to seven minutes is a really long time or, you know, something that I should really be excited about saving. The fact is, is like maybe it only takes me five to seven minutes to get the notification from Calendly and set up the Zoom meeting and put it in Google calendars and then send the invite with the link over to the client. But that meant that means that I'm having to like stop something that I'm already doing and to get like into all of those programs and to kind of set all of that up. And it's broken a train of thought that I probably already had. And so that is really why I think automations are so convenient and so helpful. Not so much that they're saving you like mountains of time, 
but they are saving you having to switch your focus, which is what is going to benefit you in the long run. And then lastly, I love Canva templates. I use Canva for everything. If you're a graphic designer, you're probably cringing right now. But as somebody who is not gifted in that way, Canva saves my tush. I have templates for all kinds of things, social media, website stuff, digital downloads, probably some other stuff I'm just not thinking of right now. Not only does it allow me to stay on brand with my colors and my fonts and, you know, even some design elements in there, but I'm able to quickly create media for all the things that I have to create media for. The principle in this is just to create a model, a template that you can plug and play over and over and over again. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every time that you need to design something, which you will need to design things. You can save yourself so much time and focus on things that really need your creativity when you do things this way. So whether you're using something like Canva or PicMonkey or something in the Adobe suite, just go ahead and set up some templates that you can use over and over and over again so that you're not having to sit down and this like graphics creation takes you so much time. Be smart about where you spend your energy so that you have lots of it to give when it really matters. All right, question number three was from MJ. And she asked, how and why did you decide to go wholesale with your business? All right, I love this question. It's so practical. So first, let me give a little bit of context. And then I think I can offer some things to consider if you are thinking through this right now for your business. So when I started my embroidery business, the Slim Thread, I didn't have the foresight to think through wholesale. I wasn't creating products that were suitable for wholesale, and I definitely didn't have my prices set to accommodate wholesale. My journey into wholesale was kind of a stumble. I started selling some of my work in stores that operated on consignment and then quickly noticed that my margins just weren't there and I couldn't keep up with demands with the products that I was selling. And so that's how my embroidery kits were born. Um, I started teaching workshops and I saw how people loved expressing their creativity with embroidery. And then I turned that into a product. So over time I was able to create something that would work for wholesale. And it's honestly become the bulk of what I do within my product based business, like easily 85, 90%. So if you are considering wholesale, here are some things that I think you should think through before you take that step. First of all is, do you have the margin to offer a 50% discount on your products and still make a profit? If you don't, then you need to work to see if you can raise your prices or lower your expenses or decrease your labor costs or something like that. You cannot lose money and be successful at wholesale or anything really. So first, think through your pricing, take a good long look at that, run the numbers, run them again, run them a third time, and then make any adjustments that you need to make. Number two, are you able to mass produce your product? So when I say mass produce, I don't mean by the thousands, but I do mean by the dozens and then hopefully eventually the hundreds, maybe one day the thousands. But if you don't know how to do this with your product, then you should probably go back to the drawing board and figure out if it's even possible. If it's not possible, then you might need to think of a different product to offer at wholesale, maybe like a variation of what you're currently doing. Now, I do want to note though that 
not every product you create has to be eligible for wholesale. I still create some products that just aren't a part of my wholesale inventory and that's okay. It is not an all or nothing situation, but you obviously need to have a pretty good offering of wholesale products. And so, um, if you feel like, like imagine that somebody placed an order for 20 of one thing that you make if that completely like overwhelms you and kind of blows your mind a little bit and you have no idea how you could even make that work, that's a good sign that your products are not ready for wholesale and that you need to make some adjustments however you need to make them. Uh, Lastly, are you ready to hand over the merchandising to somebody else? So one of the beautiful things about wholesale is that you're relieved of a lot of marketing efforts, but that also means that you give up control of how your products are sold. You can't tell the shop owner how to set up your products for display. And if your products don't sell or if the shop runs a promotion, your products could be included in that price drop. Now you could create a contract that says that the retailer can't sell your products below a certain price. But in my experience, you're going to get a little bit of pushback on that. So think through how you can set the retailer up for success to best sell your products in their store and make sure that you think through whether or not that retailer is a good fit before you start that relationship. If those are all things that you feel confident in, then get started reaching out to retailers. I have been using a site called FAIR, F-A-I-R-E, to manage my wholesale orders, and I've had a great experience using it. And I've also met some really great retailers through the site. It is really so easy to use. Think Etsy for wholesale. You can import your line sheet and then manage all of your orders from one place. And acceptance to FAIR is through an application process. So unlike Etsy, it is not a free-for-all. The quality is well-managed and it keeps everything top-notch and well-curated. So if you want to learn more, I have included a link in the show show notes for you to get more information and apply as a maker to FAIR and using this referral link that I have will give you a leg up in the application process being that I'm already a successful maker on FAIR. And as always, if you have any questions about this and you're still not sure if it's a right fit for your business, then go to thegroundingpodcast.com and contact me and we can chat through all the specifics that apply specifically to your unique situation. You know that I am all about only expanding your business when it's going to benefit you in the long run. So making sure that you're doing that wisely is my top priority. All right. Last question that I got for this listener Q and a episode was from Jamie. Jamie wrote in and said, after listening to the episode with Lauren Dahl of Bergamot design co, she talks about turning down work. While I agree with only taking the right kind of work, I think it might be a little different for people who are not, who are single or not married. It was clear that she had the financial support from her husband that if she wasn't taking on work and paychecks, things would be okay because there was another provider. So what would you say to people who don't have that support or financial backing to fall back on as a single provider? Oh man. Okay. This question is so good, mainly because it is the story of so many female creatives. In the early years of our marriage, um, I was the sole provider for Paul and I while we waited on his green card and work visa to be processed. And that meant that I busted my tail and took all the work that I could get. Now, it kept us afloat for a while, but I can also look back and see how I could have maybe just handled it better so that I was still making the money that I needed to be making, but not sacrificing the quality of my work as well as the direction that I was wanting to take my brand. So... 
through my mistakes, here are some things that I have learned that I think that you should consider when it comes to accepting work in relation to your financial needs. So number one, I want you to consider what your financial needs actually are. So I think many times we don't sit down and work out a budget to really have a clear understanding of how much money we need to make. We all have aspirations and that's great. But bottom line, we need to know how much money we need to pay our bills and not get ourselves in trouble. So I think it is always best to just work backwards. Whatever you need for the year, for the quarter, for the month, whatever is easier to measure, then work from that time frame. And then look at your sales. If you offer services, how many clients do you need? If you sell products, what's the average price of your products and how many of those do you need to sell? The goal for knowing these numbers is to make sure that you aren't adopting a scarcity mindset and just accepting every single thing that comes your way in order to make money. Because once you reach your goals for the month or the quarter, that's going to free you up to start getting real picky about what else you're going to accept and only do what really lights you up. And you're not just going to accept everything out of fear of not being able to pay your bills. So knowing exactly what you need to pay your bills, like what is ground zero? What's that bottom line? Like I have to make this. I cannot make less. Know that number. Have it in your head. Have it pasted somewhere so that you can... You can see it. And then when you hit that, then you know that everything that comes beyond that is just bonus. And if something comes in that you're like, I really don't want to do that, you can make that decision not out of fear that you're not going to be able to pay your bills, but out of confidence that you are deciding whether or not you want to do it. That And it has nothing to do with your finances. It just solely has to do with how passionate you are about the project. The second thing to consider is really just to keep in mind the direction that you're wanting to take your brand and what kind of work you would be doing if money wasn't a factor. So as you are accepting all of this work, you want to be thinking about the future. So when we are just starting or maybe it's a down season and we need to take on things that we wouldn't usually want to take on, consider the long-term effect that a project's going to have on your brand. If it is way outside of your wheelhouse and the image that you're trying to craft, then I would encourage you to weigh the pros and cons. I mean, what would it look like even if you turned away that money and you worked to find it somewhere else? And let me give you a practical example. So say you are a watercolor artist and your dream is to do live paintings at weddings and someone comes to you and asks you to paint a portrait of their dog. Now, you don't want to do pet portraits forever. That's not the direction that you're wanting to take your brand. So you have to strategically think through how this is going to affect the trajectory of your branding. What if that person shares their pet portrait and then you get dozens of additional requests and the next thing you know, your commissions are filled with little dogs and cats. It's money, but was it worth taking that one order? Could there have been a way for you to make that $100, $200 some other way at the time and kept pushing towards your goal of life paintings? Now, I'm not saying that there's a right or wrong answer here. There is not a right or wrong answer here. And if you're accepting work that is a little bit off from what you want to be doing long term, you are not failing. You are not doing a bad thing. But it is important to consider how that work that you are taking just to make the money is going to affect your long-term goals for your business. Because I know that you are going to do good work regardless and your customer or your client is going to be thrilled and tell others about their experience with you. And before you know it, you're going to have a reputation for that service that you provided. So my advice here, honestly, is just to make sure that it's not going to be hard 
to shake this if you don't want it to hang around. Uh, thirdly is to market your work in a way that's going to increase your chances of receiving the kind of customers and clients that you want to serve. On the flip side, in order to do the work that you want to do, you have to attract the work that you want to do, the people that you want to do the work for. So don't forget while you are working hard to build your business and make the money that you want to make to be really bold and consistent with your marketing efforts. There have been a lot of projects that I have done for customers that I purposefully chose not to share on social media or my website because I knew that I simply did them for money and I didn't want what I just talked about to happen where, you know, it, it really latched on and people got really excited about it. And then that's what I was known for moving forward. So even if you're really proud of what you did, if it's not what you want to continue to pursue in your business, then just keep it on the down low. <laughs> Number four, don't beat yourself up when you have to take some work that you're not crazy about. It will get better and we all have to start from somewhere. There are no perfect scenarios. You are not a failure because you have to take some work in order to keep your cash flow positive. It's a humbling experience that can teach us a lot of things. It also shows the dedication that we have to our business when we are committed to doing less than glamorous things in order to see this thing grow. But regardless, I would still encourage you to think through all the things that I just mentioned and make sure that you're not just taking on work out of a scarcity mentality or the thought that if you turn something away, that nothing else is going to come take its place. I am a very practical person and I do not want you to go broke. So figure out what your bottom line is that you're needing to make. And then once you have secured those funds, get picky, build your brand awareness and take on work that's going to fan your flame. And it's also going to give you some really great photos to show off in the process. All right, guys, that is it. We have successfully made it to the end of season one, and I am thrilled with how it all went. I am also super thankful for each one of you who have dived in with me. I'm going to be taking a short break to make it through the holiday madness, and then I will be back with a new season in your feed later this year. But I am going to go ahead and tell you that I already have a fun bonus episode planned before season two launches. So make sure that you subscribe to this podcast wherever you've been listening so that you don't miss that episode. And if you aren't already, please head over to Instagram and give me a follow at Jordan Kavuma. That's where I love to interact with everyone and share more tips and tools and resources on how to navigate this crazy world of creative entrepreneurship without sacrificing all that you hold dear. And if I haven't said it enough already, I would love for you to rate and review this podcast. It honestly takes about 30 seconds and it is the most helpful way that you can support me and this passion that I have to deliver free and actionable content to fellow creatives that want to thrive in their business and in their personal life. So please do that in the app before you go off to work on whatever amazing thing that you are creating next. Thanks so much for listening in on this episode of The Grounding. I hope that you have loved season one and that you will continue to join me for season two at the end of this year. If you are not yet signed up to receive my weekly pep talk straight into your inbox, then I would love for you to do that now. It is a great way to continue to connect as a community and to have the tools and resources that you need to grow your creative business. So to do that, head over to thegroundingpodcast.com and you will find all that you need as well as all of the season's show notes. So thanks again and we'll talk soon.